the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We started the week with some happy news. Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, became proud parents to a baby boy. Harry spoke to a reporter soon after his son arrived, but said they did not yet have a name for the young royal, who is seventh in line to the British throne and the eighth great-grandchild of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. Two days later, Harry and Meghan appeared with their baby in front of reporters and later revealed the child's name as Archie Harrison Mountbatten Windsor. Harry and Meghan are approaching royal parenthood differently than Harry's brother, Prince William, and his wife, Kate, in saying they want a more protective shield from possible intrusive media coverage. Megan has a connection to Toronto, having lived here for a time while shooting the TV show Suits. And Harry and Megan first went public as a couple in Toronto during the 2017 Invictus Games. Soon after the news of the new royal was announced, Libby Snymer spoke with Zoomer Magazine's deputy editor, Kim Eatso. There is a royal duty. The taxpayers do pay for their lifestyle. I think there is a, a duty to let, yeah. the royal, let his public know because everyone. And also, I think he's also just excited to come out and make this announcement. He knows, you know, from from social media and Instagram and Twitter, they know that they're a beloved couple and that the world was waiting and there was a lot of love going around for him and his wife and and the baby. So I think he he had to do it and it was the right thing to do. And I think he wanted to. I think they probably got a talking to by uh, whoever. I I don't know if it was grandma or grandma sent someone more likely because I thought that's pretty churlish given that the public does pay for their very, very lavish lifestyle. I mean, they are good ambassadors. There's no question about that. And there's a big fascination with them. But I thought it was pretty churlish to say, okay, everybody buzz off. I mean, on the other hand, you understand you don't want the, it's an incredible barrage. At, at it's a fishbowl, right? It's well, it's a fishbowl, and it's a very uh, delicate time. But you know, every other royal stands on the balcony with the baby, and well, they stand outside the hospital. That's yeah. actually what usually happens. Yeah, like when um, Prince William's first son was born, Prince George. Well, actually, every child since yeah. they come out of the hospital. Now, those children are directly in line to the throne, so it's different. And I think there was a thinking that because you know Harry's dropped down in terms of where he stands in line to the throne, like you know, there's less pressure on him, and therefore on Meghan and this baby. But there really isn't. You know. Well, I think she probably has a lot to do with it and she wants to do things differently. She's a different kind of royal. She's an an American, first of all. And do you think that has anything to do with the intensity of the interest? Absolutely. I think people were obsessed with this. Well, for two reasons. I think people love Prince Harry. You know, we saw him walk behind his mother's uh, procession when he was 12 and with the bowed head. We saw him struggle, you know, go into the military. We saw him make very public mistakes and then come out and talk about his mental illness and things he's had to cope with. And I think people have a huge well of sympathy for Harry. And so when he met Meghan and she was this, you know, beautiful American girl, uh, it was a fairy tale story. And we, we, which of course harkens back to his mom, as we all, which did not end so well. But, um, yeah, I think people are just obsessed with Harry and Meghan for that. And obviously, I think, you know, the Americans love the royals anyways, but now having one into their own is obviously exciting. One of the things that strikes me about 
the whole thing is that it's it's totally retrograde kind of fantasy that that a quote commoner is plucked out i mean not that she she was you know well known in her own right and and becomes a princess and people are transfixed by this well a duchess in this case a duchess sorry yes, yes. whatever <laughs> But yeah, people are, you know, it's, it's a Disney, Disneyfication of life, right? You know, everyone wants to be a prisoner. Um, Megan, yeah, I mean, yeah, she was a successful woman as a career woman. She already had a big interest in doing charitable work. Uh, she worked, you know, she had volunteered for World Vision. She visited Africa numerous times. She spoke at the UN as a, you know, uh, for at the women's conference. So these are things in her life that existed before Harry. So to be fair to her, like she didn't just get swept up from nowhere. Like she was already an active, an activist. Um, it just suited, I think, Prince Harry and his sort of life view as well. And I think that's why they're, they're such a great couple. And I think why people are fascinated because they have a platform on which they want to do good. And the baby just plays into that because it's like, you know, every, everyone loves a baby. Kim, what would you like to leave us with? You know, I think it's just important to sort of put this into perspective. Um, it is, there's a lot of bad news out there in the world, as we know. And I think this story allows people to have something that's happy and bright and, and they can think about that's, you know, a good news story. And I think that's what we should look at it. That was Kim Itso, deputy editor of Zoomer magazine, in conversation with Libby Snymer. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Also on Monday, Toronto City Councillors were joined by members of the mayors and regional chairs of Ontario to oppose the proposed budget cuts by the Doug Ford PCs at Queen's Park. A memo from the group calls on the provincial Tories to stop their plans, saying the cuts to health care will have a significant negative impact on the health, safety and general well-being of the residents of Ontario. Toronto Public Health Chair Joe Cressy hosted some health board chairs from other regions of Ontario in solidarity against the planned public health cuts, which city staff say will cost the city of Toronto $1 billion over the next 10 years. A spokesperson for Health Minister Christine Elliott tried to reassure those concerned by telling them the government has every expectation that public health units will continue to be properly funded as municipalities are empowered to have a stronger role in the delivery of public health. Both Dr. Rosanna Salvatera, Medical Officer of Health for Peterborough, and the Regional Chair for Waterloo, Karen Redman, shared their insights. It isn't just about the money, Libby, to be quite honest. It's about a fundamental restructuring, going from 35 existing bodies down to 10 regional health boards. Really, it worries me that um, the integration will be lost. We've been very well served um, throughout the province and certainly in in my riding um, of Waterloo Region as well with that integrated approach where we get public health to comment on planning, on transportation, on dealing with the opioid crisis. And if we go to arm's length uh, bodies, they're opaque. We don't know what the taxing authority is like. So there's a lot of questions. One of the things that Doug Ford said was that in some of the smaller health authorities, they were having trouble uh, finding people to staff and, and stuff like that, which is why he said he made them bigger. 
my concern is the fact that they are moving the decision-making and the authority away from the grassroots. I think there are other ways to deal with those issues. They certainly aren't anything that any of the Marco members have been dealing with. We have excellent professional staff, and we benefit, as do our citizens, from the decisions that are made hand-in-hand with public health. Okay. Dr. Salvatera, how do you respond to Ford's comments? We have concerns that that these proposed 10 new regional boards of health are, are far bigger with, with much less representation and connection to local communities. Unlike Waterloo, we, we have very uh, a lot of rural, very, uh, our urban centers are quite small. Um, we uh, are concerned that, in fact, the, the download that's being uh, proposed from the current 75% provincial to the 25% uh, municipalities to debt down to a 60-40 uh, proportion is really not sustainable for small rural communities. We don't, they don't have the funds to be able to fund uh, public health and that this would jeopardize our public health services. We, we saw certainly what happened back when municipalities shouldered a greater burden for public health uh, and it, it took SARS and it took Walkerton to expose the fact that public health had been neglected for many years and we certainly don't want to go back there. What would you like to leave us with? I think the the announcements that were made in the budget are very concerning. Uh, They're concerning because public health is such an important investment. And we we want to protect that investment. Uh, We know that every dollar we spent that we spend in public health saves money. It saves lives. Uh, And so uh, going forward in a a process that is open and transparent where municipalities and boards of health have an opportunity to help design the future would be what, what we would be looking for from our provincial government. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with, Karen Redman? We recognize that municipalities now are providing services that weren't imagined when we um, started out uh, relying on our municipal tax base and the affordability of homes to fund these things. So we recognize that our relationship with senior levels of government, uh, clearly the province and the federal government, are very important for us to deliver the kind of services and the quality of services that people have come to expect from municipalities. Having said that, we need to work with them. We need to be consulted and craft a change. If we're going to have a fundamental change, let's have a thoughtful discussion. And it doesn't have to take years. Nobody, I think, is against being more efficient, but we need to be effective. We need to be transparent. And we need to be able to respond to local need. And that varies across the province. So I, too, would really welcome the opportunity to continue to work with this provincial government to make sure that any change that comes about is one that's in the best interest of the people we serve. That was Dr. Rosanna Salvatera, Medical Officer of Health for Peterborough and the Regional Chair for Waterloo, Karen Redman. You're listening to the Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. With the change to warmer weather comes the risk of Lyme disease carried by ticks. Unfortunately, the number of ticks is spreading in Canada. And experts warn that now residents of six provinces, including Ontario, are at risk. Libby spoke with Dr. Lawrence Lowe, Associate Medical Officer of Health for the region of Peel. What we have discovered are two new risk areas 
which uh, people may encounter black-legged ticks uh, within uh, the region of Peel. The way risk areas are calculated uh, basically is on the basis of where a tick is found and then a radius around them. And so uh, one of the ticks was found, I believe, near the University of Toronto Mississauga campus, but because of where it is, that area actually covers most of the city of Mississauga. Uh, based on the radius. Uh, and the other one was found uh, just up in northern Brampton. So that also covers most of Brampton as well as parts of Caledon as well. Okay. And there are a lot of people in those areas. There are indeed. Um, but again, it's important to remember that the risk is mostly when you are outside. And if you're doing outdoor hiking activities or uh, recreational activities, you may encounter uh, ticks, particularly in areas where there's heavy brush or forest, etc. Okay. So first of all, one of the things that people suggest uh, as a preventive measure is that if you're going hiking in a kind of foresty area, you know, wear long sleeves, long pants, put your socks over your pants, all of that, right? That's correct. Yeah. And we also recommend in addition to uh, wearing sort of long sleeves, long pants, making sure that you're all covered, that you also use a, a mosquito repellent that contains DEET. That contains DEET. Okay. So let's get to these ticks. How do you recognize uh, a bad kind of a tick? So I'll be completely honest with you. It's difficult even for someone like me to actually take a look at a tick and say, this is definitely a black-legged tick. Um, But what we are fortunate uh, with is that, uh, at least here in Peel Region, as well as in other health units, uh, there are opportunities. If you do manage to uh, find a tick and have it intact, you can submit it to your local health unit. Um, And so here at Peel, uh, we have uh, two locations, uh, one at uh, here on Terra and Derry at our public health office uh, and one up in Caledon uh, that people can basically drop by and uh, uh, drop the tick off and have a look and see if it's, and we'll have a look and see if it's, if it's a black-legged tick, which is the one that we're concerned about. Okay, so you find a tick and there is a certain way that the mark would look that you have to be on the lookout for, right? Uh, no, it, it, the big thing is to really look for whether there is an attached tick. So uh, whether there's a tick that's actually uh, attached to the arm. Um, and actually, I've just uh, been told uh, by some colleagues that you actually can't feel uh, tick bites typically. So that really can or cannot. Home. Yeah, you cannot. So that okay. really that really drives home the importance of making sure that you check yourself uh, sort of all over any exposed skin uh, to make sure you can identify any tick after having been outside. And then you're supposed to keep the tick, yep. stick the tick in a bottle, and get it to somebody to figure out if the tick has Lyme disease. That's correct. And we at Peel Region, as well as many other health units, will take tick submissions at our offices and uh, and we'll be able to determine whether this tick is in fact a black-legged tick and whether it's infected by, uh, and if it is, we'll be able to send it for further testing to determine if it's infected with Lyme disease. Okay. And the other issue in all of this is Lyme disease, uh, if you don't have the tick especially, can be notoriously difficult to diagnose. Well, I, so I think it's important to say that in order to be diagnosed with Lyme disease, typically the, the expectation is that you have had some sort of exposure uh, to a tick. I think that's the, that's the first thing that I would say there. So um, now we do recognize that many people may have been bitten by a tick and it, it may, they may not have felt it or noticed it. Um, either way, Lyme disease as a whole uh, is, is something that is related to, you know, you've had some sort of exposure to a tick and then you have the, uh, to a black-legged tick that's infected with the disease. And then you actually have, uh, have, you know, the development of symptoms and the syndrome afterwards. What would you like to leave us with? I, I would like to just say, you know, the big thing is Lyme disease is still fairly rare, but there are lots of uh, measures you can take to protect yourself, especially as the risk areas continue to expand. And if you find a tick, by all means, send it to public health and we'll have a look and see uh, what we can do with it.
That was Dr. Lawrence Lowe, Associate Medical Officer of Health at the region of Peel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Early in the week, U.S. President Donald Trump threatened to increase tariffs on China as trade negotiations were coming down to the wire, a move he ended up following through on later in the week. So what kind of implications will this dispute have for Canadian investors? We turned to Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor. Alan Small Financial Group with Hollis Wealth, who dropped by and spoke with Libby Snymer. You know, when word got out that uh, they were going to raise tariffs to 25% on $200 billion worth of goods. Threatening, threatening. Threatening. Well, his threats sometimes, unfortunately, come true. But but doing that as of Friday, uh, the markets took that uh, as a big negative, sold off. Came back at the end of the day, but then subsequently the markets, I think the following day, which was yesterday... Uh, I think they said that this could become a reality, sold off over 400 points on the Dow in the U.S., uh, both here in the, on the Toronto stock market, the S&P 500, all the major markets in the U.S. had a, a significant sell-off, and here we are today. The markets are sort of flat. We're all waiting to see what happens when the Chinese delegation arrives in Washington. It's interesting. You know, I'm comparing this uh, in December. I remember uh, being on holiday in the United States and watching the markets tank and thinking, oh boy. And then they came back so fast. Is this a situation where you think that could happen again? I think so. I think this sell-off that we saw in the last couple of days is is very small in comparison. At the end of last year, the markets actually dipped over 20% in the last quarter. The bottom, now that we look back, was on on December 24th, Christmas Eve. And so I think there were a few other things at at play at that time. You had the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, or the talk of raising interest rates down in the U.S. was still alive. And when you talk about raising interest rates in the face of these, uh, you know, I guess uh, China trade negotiations or or, uh, or tariffs, as well as slowing growth, which is what we saw in the U.S. at the end of last year. So I think that also played a big factor. But I think today, make no mistake about it, everybody knows that it is the trade negotiations that's causing this dip in the markets. Back at the end of December, there was some dispute whether it was the Fed and their policies or was it the, the, the trade talks with China. I think today we all know it's the trade talks with China. So the pullback's been a little bit less. The talk at the end of last year was that, hey, the market is due for a correction. A lot of people have been saying that. And then it corrects, but the correction doesn't take. It was, you know, back up with the snap of a finger. So is there an element here where it's due in addition to the trade talks with China? Well, I think, you you know, one can make the argument, I guess now for quite some time, you know, here we are in a, over a 10-year bull market, that a trade correction, that we're due for one or, or a recession, we're due for one. And um, to me, I don't really consider that. Uh, I don't think bull markets end just because they've been running for 10 years. You think you have to have certain factors in place, usually at the end of a, of, a, of a cycle, a bull run, you tend to see interest rates start to rise. And that usually has a, a plays a big part in a, a slowdown in the economy, in the stock market. We still haven't seen that. You're looking at the 10-year bond rate here in Canada, somewhere around 1.5%, 1.7%. In the U.S., around 24 2.5%. So interest rates are nowhere near as high as you would normally see when you start to hit the end of a, of a long-term cycle or a bull market. So I think there's 
still room to run as yet. I think these are uh, a lot of noise right now based on geopolitical events. I think it's just noise. And I think once this clears up, you could see this market still run a little further. I think many people are hoping, like myself, that this is the catalyst. These trade negotiations are the catalyst to take the markets to the next level because a lot of people were fearful, fearful for a while that a recession was, was imminent. I think more people, more and more people are talking about if this trade deal can get done, this could be a catalyst for quarters to come that people could see their portfolios continue to rise, albeit at a measured pace, but still rise. And perhaps the recession will be pushed off for a, a little while yet. Okay. Anything else you'd like to leave us with, Alan? Well, I would say, you know, keep, uh, keep the noise out of things. Keep uh, emotion out of investing. There's a lot of noise out there right now, whether it be from geopolitical events, you know, you know, Iran, U.S. or U.S., China, U.S., Canada, you know, on the talks that we're having about our, our trade negotiations. So there's a lot out there to digest. Stick with the market. Stick with what we know. And I think, uh, you know, the hope is that these deals will get done and the markets will continue to rise. That was Senior Investment Advisor Alan Small of Alan Small Financial Group with Hollis Wealth. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Cheryl from Toronto phoned about the joyful news Prince Harry shared in announcing the birth of his new son. I think with her marrying into the royal family, it sort of seems like she's constantly trying to change um, what's going on. It's an institution, and with the institution and you marry into the family, you have to accept possibly, you know, the rules and regulations. William married Kate. She followed the rules. She's an outsider. It just seems to me that Meghan is very methodical and almost like trying to still be that Hollywood, trying to capture all the attention. So for me, I'm not excited. I love the royal family. I love, you know, William, Kate, but I don't think Harry and Meghan will top them. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Robin in Mono, Ontario, a former healthcare worker who shared her truth about working in this field. I'm a healthcare worker. I have been in the healthcare system for almost 33 years. People seem to think that healthcare workers are overpaid. Well, I'm going to tell you, I make under $30 an hour. I have to go to school for 36 hours every three years. If I don't get those hours in, I don't have a job. You guys, they need us. They need us in the healthcare field. I'm going to be 55 this year. I think I'm going to leave the healthcare field because this is very frustrating for us healthcare workers. We're not getting paid the money we should be. And yet we have to be educated. We have to keep up with our education. And people just don't seem to get it. You want good health? You want good workers? You have to pay us. I just got a raise. 49 cents I got this year. Wow. That was my raise. So really, we're well, not getting paid so much what people think we are. You know, Robin. And if they're going to give us more cuts, you're going to have less and less good workers. 
That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. 